I talked with my good friend David Farr, and he said, Duncan, South Carolina has no idea what they're losing in John. He is a good man. We've talked. I know some of you have talked with him. I know where he stands, and I'll be saying more about him just before the worship service when we introduce them then. John, come and teach the class. Good morning. I'd like to thank all of you for uh, allowing um, my wife and I to come out here and, and uh, spend the weekend with you. Uh, I'd like to really thank all the ladies of the congregation for having such a good ladies' class yesterday. Uh, while I was stuck in a hotel room with two screaming girls for about three hours, uh, my wife was relaxing and having lots of fun and, and getting to know all of you. Um, and yet somehow I'm still thanking you for that. But, uh, uh, but I really appreciate the hospitality, um, especially uh, I appreciate those who came out and, and had a, a dinner with us last night. I did finish the ribs. Uh, that did happen. Um, I had, I ordered a plate of ribs and I just st- got, started talking so much the ribs became cold and they're like, well aren't you gonna eat your ribs? And I was like, I'll have to warm them up in the hotel microwave. But, uh, they were really good. That ribbon, uh, that ribbon loin restaurant, that's very good. Regardless of whether or not, uh, um, we, uh, we come here, I might just make the trip just to come back to that restaurant. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, had a lot of good things to say about the Old Testament, and it's very important that we remember that because um, the Old Testament, generally speaking, is something that we don't, as Christians, put as much study into, as much emphasis on as we do the New Testament. And, and there's a reason for that, because uh, the New Testament teaches very clearly that, that uh, the Law of Moses, the Old Testament, was taken out of the way at the cross, and it was replaced by the law of Christ, the new covenant. And we understand that. And it's very, very good that we, that we really study the life of Christ. We study uh, what the early church did in the book of Acts. We study the doctrine of the apostles that is found all throughout the New Testament because that's, that is where we learn what God wants Christians to do. Uh, how we obey God in this particular covenant. But a mistake that we make a lot of times is we we don't study the Old Testament nearly as much as we do the New Testament. And we need to remember that even though the laws of the Old Testament, the Torah, the law of Moses, and the, the law and the prophets, even though that has been taken out of the way and, and we are no longer obligated to obey those laws. We, we don't have to, we are, we are not commanded to keep the Sabbath day holy or observe Passover or Pentecost or any of those other religious holidays. But at the same time, there is still a lot of good that we get from the Old Testament. When Paul told Timothy that all Scripture is inspired by God, all Scripture literally is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness so that the man of God, that's the Christian, may be perfect, complete, competent, uh, equipped for every good work. When Paul said that to Timothy, at the time, the majority of Scripture was the Old Testament. Paul and the other apostles were in the process of writing out the New Testament, but he was talking about the Old Testament and saying, Christians, 
even though the laws of the Old Testament no longer apply to you, there is much in the Old Testament that can make you competent, complete, perfect, mature in the sight of God. So it's good that we study the Old Testament. That's what I want to do. Uh, that's what I want to do this morning. I'd like for you to open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings. I would like for us to examine an episode that probably you did not study about in Sunday school. Usually when, when we're children and we are uh, taught the Old Testament in Sunday school and Wednesday night Bible classes for, for children, we are told about Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses with, with the plagues and the Red Sea and David and Goliath. But there's a lot more in the Old Testament that happened to people of Israel that, generally speaking, you don't hear that much about. But it's still in there for a purpose. Proverbs 30, verse 5, says that every word of God is tested. In other words, from the very first word in Genesis to the very last word in Revelation, God knew exactly what he was doing when he inspired the writers of Scripture to put that in there. He had a purpose for it. And that includes the episode that we're going to look at in Second Kings. Go to chapter 7 of Second Kings. I'm going to give you a little bit of background as to what's going on. This is in the period of Israel's history in which the kingdom of Israel was divided. When they obtained their freedom from Egyptian slavery and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years under Moses and then under Joshua, conquered the promised land. After Joshua's death, they were ruled by judges and they repeatedly fell away. They repeatedly came back to God. And then um, the time of the judges ended with Samuel when the, when Israel looked at the nations around them and they said, hey, these nations around us, they have kings. We would like to have, have a king too. And Samuel didn't like that all that much, but he talked to the Lord about it. The Lord said, go ahead and do what they want you to do. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And so Samuel uh, anointed Saul, who turned out to be not that righteous, not that godly of a man to be king. But Saul was succeeded by David, a man after God's own heart. Uh, when David died, his son Solomon took the throne. Solomon, uh, the wisest man who ever lived other than Jesus, of course. He ruled at first in a very godly way, but then he himself fell away because he was influenced to go into pagan idolatry uh, through, his, uh, through all the wives and the concubines that he had. When he passed away, his son Rehoboam took the throne. Rehoboam did not pay attention to the counsel of his older, more experienced advisors. He decided to listen to his younger, more brash advisors and raise the taxes on the populace in a very, very extreme way, and that resulted in the kingdom dividing. The ten northern tribes of Israel formed one kingdom, which the Old Testament refers to it as Israel or Samaria, as uh, after the capital city, and the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they were known as Judah, with Jerusalem remaining as their capital. And when a kingdom divides, both kingdoms that come out of it are generally weakened. And the neighboring, the neighboring countries that were enemies of Israel, they noticed this. 
And they saw that Israel and Judah would be very, very uh, prime targets to be, uh, for conquest. And we know that the ten northern tribes eventually were uh, conquered by Assyria, and then the two southern ones, uh, not long after, were conquered by Babylon. But in Second Kings 7, you'll see, if you look actually at verse 6, and we're not going to read, or chapter 6, and we're not going to read all of this, but just if you skim over it, um, starting with verse 24 and going to the end of the chapter, you will see that Syria uh, was attacking uh, Samaria. They, they, the king and his armies uh, completely surrounded the city. And if you, if you look at verse 24 through the end of the chapter, things were very, very bad inside the city because of this siege. And that, isn't that usually what happens? Well, for those of you who have studied military history, military tactics, when you, when you uh, put a city under siege, uh, what's the purpose of it? The purpose of it is to starve them out, right? Because you're surrounding the town. They can't go out into the farmland to get food. And eventually their food's going to run out. And you're going to, they're either going to have to surrender to you or they're going to have to die. That's exactly what happened uh, in this situation. Inside the, um, inside the city of Samaria, things were very, very bad. Inflation was rising. And it, what, what really saddens me is if you read from verse 24 through the end of the chapter, uh, the Bible implies that they were resorting to cannibalism. That's how bad off it was. And that brings us to chapter 7. In chapter 7, I'd like for us to start with verse 3. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, but when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. So basically... Samaria is under siege. The people are starving inside the city. Right there at the gate, you have these lepers. They're dying even if everything was okay because they had leprosy. Leprosy was a terrible, terrible uh, disease, and it killed you. They're starving to death, and so they reason among themselves. They say, you know what, we have leprosy, and we're starving. We can't go into the city. We go into the city, uh, we're violating the law of Moses, well, the quarantine laws of lepers. And besides, there's no food in the city. If we stay here, we're not going to get any food, and we're going to continue to die anyway. Why don't, let's just go over to the enemy's camp. What, what do we got to lose? The, we're, we're going to be dead anyway. Maybe they'll kill us. And if they don't kill us, who knows? They might at the very least give us something to eat. 
That's how desperate these men were. So they go to the camp, but when they get to the camp, the camp's gone because of, of the miraculous intervening of the Lord. No, the camp's empty. The, the enemy soldiers are all gone. And put yourself in the shoes of these lepers. You're expecting to be killed. You're starving. You, you are weak with hunger. And, and you come upon this camp. And right there, there's the fire. It's still burning. The Syrians were cooking their breakfast. There's food right there. You look around. You don't see anyone. You, you, you look inside a tent. There's no one in the tent, but what is in the tent? Lots of really, really nice clothes. You're dressed in rags. There's lots of money in the tent. Put yourself in their shoes. You're starving. You're dressed in rags. You come across food. You come across really nice clothes. You come across lots of money. What would you do? I would, I'll be honest with you, the, 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 the rule of, that we had as children was finders keepers. And that's exactly what they did. They, they, they stuffed themselves. They ate and drank. They put on these nice clothes. They took off the rags. I'm sure they grabbed a, a, a big bag of gold. It's going to take it off. They got it made. Are they starving anymore? Are things working out for them now? Yes, they, things have improved. But let's keep reading. Verse 9. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them. See, suddenly these, these lepers, they, they were in great need. They were in great need of food. They were in great need of clothing. They were in great need of money. And they found all of it just right there for the taking. And they helped themselves. They did what they needed to do in order to give themselves sustenance, in order to survive. But after they had taken care of themselves, they suddenly remembered that right over there in that city was a city full of people that were starving, just like they had been starving. And it's so bad over there in that city that chapter 6 tells us they were eating their own children. And what did they say? They said to themselves, we are not doing right. Someone tell me, what were they doing wrong? Why would they say that? We are not doing right. I'm sorry? They were keeping it to themselves. And they go on to say, today is a day of good news. But we're not sharing that good news with anyone. And if we continue not to share the good news with anyone, if we're silent, then morning light's coming, the dawn is coming, and as soon as the sun rises, the watchers on the wall over there, they're going to see what we see here. They're going to see that the camp of the enemy is empty. And they're going to come out here. And if they come out here and they see us, and we're already just right here, eating, you know, putting on all this clothes, and we didn't tell them, are we going to get in trouble? Is the king of Samaria going to be upset with us? Yes, he is. So we need, we've taken care of our own needs, we need to go and tell others so that they can they can obtain this bounty as well. Now that's in the Old Testament. 
when I was teaching at the Central Carolina School of Preaching, uh, one of the one of my assignments that I gave my students was it was in a, a class on the life and work of a preacher, and it was, we were dealing with homiletics and and how to prepare sermons. and And I gave one of my students this assignment. I said, "I want you to read Second Kings seven verses one through nine and make a sermon out of it that would apply to New Testament Christians today." And he came back to me. He said, "I I, I got nothing." I got another one. I don't understand what this, what this has to do with Christians today. We know that it does have something to do with Christians today. We know that Christians today can learn from it because the Apostle Paul told the Romans that what was written before, what was written in earlier times, was written to instruct us, to encourage us, to give us hope. Romans 15 verse 4. He told the Corinthians, in chapter 10, the first 12 verses, first 11 verses of chapter 10, he, he, he reminds them of all that Old Testament Israel went through in that wilderness while they were with Moses, all the sins that they had committed and how God had punished them. And then in verse 11, he said, now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written down, written down where? In the Old Testament to admonish us, us, the people upon whom the ends of the ages have come. New Testament Christians. This was written, this was put in the Old Testament to teach us something. So let's let's see if there's anything, that, any parallels we can draw. Now, we're not in a famine right now. The last big famine that this country went through happened during the Depression, where it was nationwide. But I look around the room, I look at myself, we're not missing any meals, are we? There's not a physical famine. But let me ask you this. Could a case be made that that in this nation and in the city of Chattanooga and even in within a mile, one mile radius of this church building, is there a spiritual famine going on? Yes or no? Yes. People are dying out there. They're spiritually dying. They are headed to an eternal hell. The majority of them don't even know it. Or they don't care. But that doesn't apply to us today. Here in this building, does it? But did it used to? What, weren't every Christian in this room, wasn't there a time in your life when you were lost? When you were headed to a devil's hell? But what changed? What happened? Someone tell me. What happened? I'm sorry? You learned the Word. How did you learn it? How did you learn it? There might be some who, and I have met some in the church, who just completely took it upon themselves. They, they, they opened their Bibles themselves. They studied it. They saw, um, they saw what they needed to do to be saved and they went ahead and did it. Um, uh, the editor of the Gospel Advocate magazine yesterday, he put on his Facebook page, um, a link to this website of a former Catholic nun 
who studied the Bible, and it, and it caused her to realize that Catholicism was completely wrong, and she gave up Catholicism. And as far as I can tell from reading the article, she became a member of the body of Christ. And she just recently passed away. So Lord willing, she passed away saved. Because she saw herself from her own studies what she needed to do. But the majority of us can't say that. The majority of us are probably like that Ethiopian when Philip encountered him. The Ethiopian was reading Isaiah 53, wasn't he? And what did Philip ask him? Do you understand what you're reading? And what did the Ethiopian say? Anyone remember? How can I unless someone teaches me? How can I unless someone explains this to me? Someone most likely cared enough about you, every single one of you, to share with you the gospel, the good news of Christ. It might have been a parent. It might have been a preacher. It might have been a co-worker. It might have been a family member. It might have been a friend or an acquaintance. It might have even been a complete stranger. But someone cared enough about your soul to share with you the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is what started the process that ended with God's grace, you being part of the Lord's body, your name being written in the book of life, your name being written in the registry of heaven, and you're no longer headed to an eternal hell, are you? But rather, your destiny and my destiny is eternity with our Lord and Savior. And isn't that a wonderful thing? Are you grateful for that? I'm grateful for that. I I think we take it for granted. Do you remember how you were when you first came up out of the waters of baptism? Do you remember how excited you were? Remember how passionate you were? You remember how thankful you were? But, you know, it's human nature that the longer we are a part of something, whatever it is, the more we tend to take it for granted, don't we? I want you to think about what a great blessing it is for, for you to be a Christian. All the benefits that come from that. And it all started with someone caring enough about you to share with you the gospel. Now here's my question. These lepers, they found what they needed in order to physically survive. And they helped themselves to it. But then they remembered something. They remember that they were not the only ones who had been starving. They remembered that there was a whole city full of people over there that were eating their own children. That's how bad off they were. And they said, we are not doing right. Today is a day of good news. The enemy's gone. Here's all this food. Here's all this clothing. And it's yours for the taking, Samaria. We need to tell them. And if we don't tell them, then we are going to get in trouble. We will be punished for it. My question for the brethren here at the White Oak Church of Christ, is today a day of good news? Is it? Has not every single day since you came up out of the waters of baptism, has not every single day been a day of good news for you? Yes, of course it is. 
but are we sharing it with others? Right outside the walls of this building, right across the street, are people who are being deceived by Satan, listening and, and heeding false doctrine, additions or subtractions to the Word of God. The creeds of men, the traditions of men, the laws and doctrines of men, they are following, they, are, they do not know the truth, they do not know the entirety of the Word of God, they do not know the pure, un, unadulterated Gospel of Christ. They're right across the street in that church building. That's right over there. They are right over there in the houses that are right next to this building, right behind this building. Literally just a stone's throw away are people who are dying in their sins. What are we doing? Are we, are we sharing the gospel with them? How many of you are planning on going out to eat after the, well, no, it's a potluck meal. I forgot about that. All right. Next Sunday, how many of you are going to go out to eat at the services? I mean, it, it tends to happen, right? The waitress, she has a soul. And that soul, most likely, since Jesus said that uh, in Matthew 7, he basically said that the majority are lost, her soul likely is, is lost. Your mailman, the woman who is your favorite checker, at the grocery store. She has a soul. Your co-workers. Your co-workers who you work side by side with 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. They have souls that are probably lost. And you have the good news. And you yourself have obeyed the good news. Are you sharing it with them? Just looking at statistics, generally speaking, the Lord's church in my lifetime has not been doing it like God wants us to. We talk so much about speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent and restoring New Testament Christianity. You hear about that, right? And, and we say part of speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent is we need to... We need to know that baptism is essential for salvation. It is essential for forgiveness of sins. And it's immersion. It is not sprinkling. And the Lord's Supper is not for weddings or taken only once a month or quarterly or annually. No, it's every first day of the week. And the preacher is not the pastor. The elders are the pastors biblically. And no, there there is not going to be a piano in the worship service because we were told to sing and the instrument we are told to play is our hearts in the New Testament. And so musical accompaniment, instrumental accompaniment uh, in worship to God, musical worship to God, that it would be in addition to the Word of God. They did not do that in the New Testament. We're trying to restore New Testament Christianity, so we're not going to have that. But I would propose to you that while all of that that I've just said is very much correct and is very much needed, there is still a big, big part of New Testament Christianity that we haven't, generally speaking, been restoring. And that is personal evangelism. We go to Acts 
Because we say to, it's in Acts, that's the pattern of salvation. In Acts, they heard the word, they believed it, they repented of their sins, they confessed their faith in Christ, and they were baptized. But one thing that we kind of not really focus so much on is that in Acts, the Christians of Acts, not just the pulpit preacher, not just the leadership of the church, but all the Christians in Acts were sharing the gospel with people, every one of them. And that's something that we kind of have let the ball drop on. In Acts 8, Stephen is has just been martyred. Great persecution rises against the very first church of Christ over there in Jerusalem. The disciples scatter. With the exception of the apostles, they all leave Jerusalem because their lives are in danger. But then, if you look at Acts 8, verse 4, it says, now those who were scattered went about doing what? Preaching the Word. And it wasn't the people who were their preachers because that would have been the apostles and the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. No, it was the congregants. It was the members that left, but while they were, while they were gone, going out, they were still talking to people. They didn't have the First Amendment. You ever think about that? The freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, they didn't have that. No, Saul of Tarsus was dragging them out of their homes, throwing them into prison and murdering them simply because of their religious beliefs, right? And yet, the fact that they did not have freedom of religion did not stop them from practicing that religion openly and talking to others about that religion. But we, we have the freedom of speech, we have the freedom of religion, and yet generally speaking, in today's church, the majority of Christians are keeping silent about it. We're keeping silent about it. The lepers said if we, if, if we keep silent about this, then we're going to get punished. The Apostle Paul told the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, that he was free of the blood of all men. That's a very interesting statement. I consider myself to be free from the blood of all men because I have not hesitated to declare the whole counsel of God. Why would he say that he was free from the blood of all men because he declared the whole counsel of God? Go to Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel chapter 3 and let's look at verse 17. Ezekiel 3, verse 17. God's talking to Ezekiel. He says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning nor to speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life. That wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. No wonder Paul said, I am free from the blood of all men because I have not hesitated to declare the whole counsel of God. He knew what God told Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, I want you to warn the people 
And if you warn the people and they don't listen to you, they remain in their sins, then I am going to punish them for all eternity. But not you, Ezekiel. Not you. You will have delivered your soul. You are free. Their blood I will not require at your hand. But, but if you do not tell them, Ezekiel, if you keep my warning to yourself, if you keep the good news to yourself, Ezekiel, they're going to die in their iniquity and I'm going to hold you accountable for that. I want you to picture in your mind every person that you come across in your day-to-day life who is not a member of the Lord's church. It's probably, the numbers are probably rising, aren't they? I want you to now picture in your mind them standing before the throne of God on the day of judgment and the Lord telling them, depart from me, enter into the hell that's prepared for the devil and his angels. And I want you to picture in your mind them turning to go over to the left to join all the other goats. And as they're going, I want you to think about this, them looking at you and saying, why didn't you tell me? We work side by side 40 hours a week for 40 years and you never even invited me to church. You never brought up religion. Why didn't you tell me? I delivered your mail to your house for your entire life. You Every Christmas time, you always had that little nice little appreciative gift basket that you gave me as your mailman. Why didn't you put a tract in it at least about the Gospel? Why didn't you tell me? And then I want you to picture this, that the Lord is standing on His throne and based on what we read Him telling Ezekiel, the Lord is going to look at you and He's going to say, that's a very good question. Why didn't you tell them? You could have. You had ample opportunity. Galatians 6 verse 10, As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. And, and you know, in most com- Bible studies I've had of Galatians 6 verse 10, we tend to talk, use that verse as the authority for benevolence. And they would be applicable, but isn't evangelism, isn't sharing the the gospel that saves men's souls, is that a good deed to do to all men? And as you have opportunity, do good to all men. That's the best type of good you can do. To share the bread of life with someone. I propose that if we want souls to be saved, if we really, really want souls to be saved, if we are passionate about it, if we have true love and true compassion like Jesus had, we're not going to be silent. I understand that the Bible says that we all have different talents, we all have different abilities, and and I know that not everyone has the ability to stand up here behind the pulpit and, and... and preach in a formal way. I remember a comedian one time, he said that he read that the statistically the number one fear in America was public speaking, and the number two fear was death. So that means that the majority of us would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. 
But you know what all of us can do? All of us have the ability to just simply have a conversation with someone about something we know about, right? All of us have the ability to, I mean, I was, I, uh, there was a good brother here who was kind enough to take me on a tour of the building yesterday. And as we were walking by, he, he pointed, he said, that, and that's the track rack right there. All of us have the ability to, to walk outside this auditorium, grab one of those tracks, and the next time you're at a restaurant, when you leave that tip, and make sure it's a good tip, by the way, because the waitresses all across this country, I read an article, the church-going crowd are the worst tippers, and they're the rudest, according to waitresses all over the country. That's not letting your light shine, right? So make sure that you that all of us treat the waitresses like Christians should treat, that we treat them with grace and patience. But let's make sure that in addition to that good tip that we leave them, that that we at least give them a tract. Well, John, they're not going to read that tract. They're going to consider us just, you know, religious fanatics, and they're just going to shake their head and, and, and toss the tract in the garbage. So what? What if they, what if they do that? According to what God said to Ezekiel, God will still say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You made the effort. I'm going to hold them accountable, but I'm not going to hold you accountable because you gave them that opportunity. You get, you gave them the good news and they chose to reject it. So you have delivered your soul. Good job. I would say that preachers and elders and Bible class teachers and deacons, leaders of the Lord's church in, in various ways, we need to reevaluate how we define success in evangelism? Success in evangelism has nothing to do with baptism. Here's what I mean by that. God did not say in Mark 16, 16, 15 and 16, go into all the world and successfully preach the gospel to every creature. What did he say? Go teach them. What did, what did Paul say? I planted and Apollos watered, but who gave the increase? Who gave the growth? It was God. We are sowers. That's all God wants us to be, just tossing that seed of the Word of God out there. And, and the parable of the sower, there were, there were four different responses to the seed, to the, to when the sower sowed the seed. One of them was the birds came and ate it up. That's that's uh, represents Satan. Just uh, because they're uh, the listener is so um, in line with uh, and and so loyal to Satan and his views that he'll just automatically reject. That's that is the that would be the atheist, probably the agnostic, those of other religions. They they just they they don't even care to consider what you would have to say. But then the seed fell among the thorny soil, or the rocky soil, rather. And that that represented those who, yes, they heard and they believed, too. They obeyed initially, but then when the persecution came, when the hard times came, uh, they fell away. And how many times have we seen someone obey the gospel, but then they come under fire from their family about it? And after about a, a few months, they just fall away. We never see them again. That's the rocky soil. The thorny soil, I would propose that the thorny soil is probably 
closer to a lot of members of the Lord's church today. The thorny soil represents those who, yes, they had the word proclaimed to them, and yes, they they obeyed it, they received it, they believed it with great joy, but then after a while, they got distracted. They got distracted by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and they fell away. But then the seed fell upon the good soil, and it produced fruit, hundredfold, sixty, thirty. Out of all of those different types of soil that the sower threw the seed on, how many in the end remained true and loyal? How many? There's just one. One out of four. That's what God's telling us. God's telling us that the bat, you, who you bring the gospel to, if you define success as a baptized individual who remains completely faithful to the Lord's church for the rest of his life, uh, you're going to have a success rate of one in four. That's what he's telling us. But he's saying, I want you to do it anyway. I want you to go out there and spread the good news. If we realize that success in evangelism is not measured in the number of baptisms, if we realize instead that success in evangelism is measured by just simply getting the word out there. Like the Thessalonians, he said, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. It has gone forth in every place so that we, the apostles, the missionaries, we don't, have, we don't need to say anything. We don't need to do anything. What a great compliment to give to a church. That God, through the Apostle Paul, is basically telling that church, you already got it covered. You've done your job. That's what God wants us to do. Are we doing it? If I come here to be, be your minister... If the church here is going to grow, I can't be the only one that's going out there. It can't be just one or two or three people. It's not going to happen. In fact, when I, if, if I come here, all of you will have a great advantage over me because you already live here, right? You already live here. You already know lots of lost people. The people that I will know is you. (laughs) But think of how much good we could do if every Christian in this auditorium decided to just simply share the good news, make the effort with the people that they know. Really, really quickly, I'm just going to share this with you really quickly. There are... There are 80-some people here. If each one of you decided that for the next calendar year, every week, every Christian here was going to, in some way, share the gospel with one different person every week, then or two different people, two different people, 80 times 2 is 160. You, would have sh- uh, you will have shared the gospel with 160 people in just one week. And if you did that with two different people every single week, then 
Multiply that by 52. At the end of the calendar year, guess how many people you would have, this congregation would have shared the good news with. And then let's say you do it for five years. Two different people every week. Guess how many people you would have shared the gospel with in five years. That's what it's all about. The, the door knocking, we can do it that way. The, the television programs, the radio programs, they are wonderful works. We can do it that way too, and, and much good has come from that. But just think of how much more good if we, in addition to those great works, if every single one of us personally, ourselves, made the effort with different people. Think about how much good that would do. Today is a day of good news, the leper said. We must not remain silent. Christians, today, yesterday, tomorrow, every day is a day of good news. Let's not be silent. Amen? Amen. Thank you for your attention.